Hello, my name is Larry Hiles. I'm the preaching minister at the Milford Church of Christ. Thank you for taking the time to watch or listen to this message. Please feel free to share it with friends. Also, if it's impacted your life in any way, reach out to us and let us know how. If you live in the Centerburg or Mount Vernon area, we'd love to have you be our guest. We're located at 3648 Johnstown Road in Centerburg, Ohio. We look forward to the opportunity of meeting you. Today, So if you have your Bibles, open them up to the book of Ephesians. Open them up to the book of Ephesians. It's sandwiched in between Galatians and Philippians. And aside from the book of Romans, many people believe that the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus might be his greatest work. And a few years ago, I opened this letter up and I just read it. I read it over and over again. And I started writing out notes and questions. And I want to encourage you as we're digging through this letter for you to do the same thing. I want to ask you to read it once a week while we're going through this letter and have a journal ready and ask some questions. And if you want to talk about these questions and reach out to me, uh, please do. I I love to talk about the Bible and especially questions uh, from the Bible. Uh, The book is fairly easy to read, but it's difficult to live out. There are only six chapters in the book of Ephesians. There are 155 verses in this small letter, uh, and it it takes the average reader about 20 minutes to read it out loud. And so this is, we'll show you what you can do through reading this. And and here's a few questions. Uh, Why should we study this book? Well, the book of Ephesians will give us a greater understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is at the center of everything. And once we realize the gospel is at the center of everything, it, it changes the way we study God's word, it really changes the way we live out our faith. Uh, The church exists to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, and we're going to see that. That's one of the verses. Uh, The manifold wisdom of God is that we'll make known the mysteries of the gospel to the universe, and that's what we're going to learn here. Uh, The book of Ephesians magnifies the importance of the church. I don't know in the New Testament if there is a book that highlights the importance of the church more than the book of Ephesians. Unfortunately, we live in an age and society that makes the church unimportant. Uh, Like the rest of Paul's letters, he wrote this letter to a body of believers, to the church. Friends, we've got to understand that the church is not optional. This isn't something that we can take or leave with our faith. As a matter of fact, the Bible teaches over and over again that once we put our faith in Jesus Christ, that he places us inside a body of believers. And, And I believe that we are saved by grace. One of the things we're going to see in this through faith But from that, that God places us in a community and it's within the body of believers that that grace grows in our lives. So the the church is important. Here's a third reason why we should study. The book of Ephesians is a, uh, we'll see a power to change. Paul's going to share with the reader, the hearer of this gospel, this letter, he's going to share with them that Jesus raised them from the dead. And the same power that raised Christ from the dead is available for them. Paul is going to share with the reader, the hearer of this great letter, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but because of the great love with which he loved us, Christ has made us alive. He's made us alive. And so we see this, uh, there's power. The book of Ephesians is probably the most contemporary book in the New Testament. Aside from the issue of slavery, everything we're going to see in this letter are things that we deal with today, things that the body of Christ here at Milford deals with as well. And the book of Ephesians is filled with grace. From the opening verses to the closing of this letter, grace is the key for everything. These are some of the reasons why I think we need to study this great letter. I've titled this series Equipped, and and while reading through this letter over and over again, this is the one word that stood out to me, uh, and it's the one word I've meditated on every time I go to the book of Ephesians, and and I find that from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. It says, and he gave... 
He himself gave some as apostles, some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the works of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of, faith, of the faith and of the full knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. You see, it's in the book of Ephesians that we are going to be equipped. If we'll allow this book to equip us, it indeed will. It'll equip us for right relationship with God through the grace of Christ. It will equip us to understand that we have a life that's marked for worship. It will equip us for right relationships in the church uh, so that we can become an instrument that carries, when I say we, I'm not talking about us as individuals. I'm talking about us as a body of believers can become instruments that will carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. It will equip the believer to live in a home where that is both changed by grace and filled with grace. And finally, it will equip the believer to fight the battles that we are going to be fighting, that we've already been fighting, but the more that we're going to be fighting, uh, these spiritual battles that are popping up in our lives and popping up in our world. Uh, this is what this book will equip us to do. Let me pray for us. Father, may your spirit guide us through this time. May we be more like you as a result of our time in this great letter. We pray these things in your son's most holy name. Amen. So to start off with our first thought process, right? Have you ever noticed that we all worship something? Every human being worships. And, and, and once we realize that, it will actually change the way we live. See, see we, we worship God, or we worship work, or we worship family, or we worship self, or we worship pleasure. But the truth is, is that we're designed for worship. And, and really, a strong argument can be made that we really don't have a sin problem as much as we have a worship problem. See, because when we put our worship in the wrong area, sin is the thing that flows out of us. Uh, see, we, we worship success, and so we spend all of our time working. Or we worship family, and we put family above everything. And, and as a matter of fact, we find ourselves uh, spending every dollar and every moment putting our kids in the extracurricular activities because we think by them they're going to have fulfillment in life. And we worship pleasure, and so we look for purpose and meaning and, and fulfillment in the bottom of a bottle or in a relationship that's not according to God's word or his will and, or a secret struggle that's known only to God. Uh, we worship self, and so we become our own source of authority. Have you ever noticed that in people, right? Uh, well, well, this is what I believe, and this is what I think, and this is what I feel, and, and oftentimes that's a result of the worship of self. We are our own authority. See, we really don't have a sin struggle. We have a worship struggle. And I want to answer the question this morning uh, from our time in God's word. Why, why should we worship? Why do we worship? Some of you might remember Jim Nobolucci. I look back at Scott and Sandra. And, you know, so Jim Nobolucci attended the Johnstown Christian Church. Uh, he, he was a Navy veteran. And uh, Scott, if you, you might be able to correct me or just shake your head yes or no. I think he was on the USS Houston. That's the, that's the boat that I see on his hat that he wore every weekend. And one, one time he, he forgot it and he had to come back looking for it. Uh, Jim was uh, um, just a great man. He, he uh, gave his life to Christ while he was floating in the ocean after that ship was sunk. And he told the Lord, he said, Lord, if you'll save me, I'll serve you forever. And if you knew Jim, you knew that that's exactly what he did. He spent his time preaching at multiple small congregations, sometimes two at a time on Sunday mornings. And, and Jim, I remember one Sunday morning in particular, he was walking out and he wasn't doing so well. And I said, Jim, I'm praying for you. And Jim was a golden glove 
boxing camp when he was a young man, and he was in his 80s at this time, and he gave me a round hook to the shoulder uh, that hurt. <laughs> and he said, you better not forget me. I said, you know, Jim, there's nobody that's ever going to forget you. And one of the things I loved about Jim is that he would get up in front of the congregation and he would pray. And, and I, don't take this the wrong way. I don't like to hear myself pray out loud, but I love to hear Jim Nobolucci pray out loud. Most of his prayers turned into a spirit-filled sermon as he was praying. And sometimes he would pray so long. I don't know if you guys remember this, but the one Sunday he was praying for a while, and his wife Vivian from the audience said, would you just say amen? And Jim promptly said amen and ended the prayer. So, but his prayers would turn into sermons. And the reason I thought of Jim Nobolucci is this, is in the first 14 verses of this letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul gives this typical greeting to them, but then he has a prayer. And as we read this prayer, this prayer sounds more like a sermon of what he's praying for this church. And so let's begin to dig through that. Ephesians 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Paul's an apostle. And as an apostle, he had authority to teach in the church. And the followers of Christ in Ephesus, they had a responsibility to read and hear the things that Paul was declaring. And that responsibility was this, is to do what he said. He was writing to them, and, and those things that he would write as the authority or an authority as an apostle, once they heard them, they came as an authority from God, and they had that responsibility to obey those things. And, and as a matter of fact, from the foundation of the church, every follower of Christ has had the responsibility to obey the authority of the apostles. After Christ was preached and 3,000 people were, uh, going to get, gave their lives to Christ on the day of Pentecost, it, it says this, and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayers. As a follower of Christ, our obedience to the Lord is something that we've already predetermined. Right? At least it should be. I think we often forget that fact that the moment we confess Jesus Christ to be the Lord of our lives, the moment we're baptized into him and raised to the newness of life, that's the moment that we've predetermined so many things in life that once we come across something in God's word, that means that we're going to submit to that authority no matter what it is, right? And, and friends, I, I want to ask you as, as we're opening up this letter and, and beginning this new journey together, have you predetermined or will you predetermine to do what this book tells us to do? to respond with the same kind of response uh, that God expects for, for us to have for an apostle's authority and the teaching of his word. And notice that Paul is writing to the saints, and saints are not dead. They're not already in heaven. We are the saints. The body of Christ are the saints. And as a matter of fact, if Paul were writing a letter to the church here at Milford, the Milford Church of Christ, he would probably begin that letter something like this to the saints, at the Milford Church of Christ. And, but he's writing to the saints that are in Ephesus. And there's a few things that we should know about this city. It's, uh, it was the most important city in, in the province of Asia. Not the continent of Asia, but the province of Asia. When the Bible speaks of Asia, it speaks of the Roman province. And, and Pergamum was the capital city there, but Ephesus was the most important. It was a port city. 
meaning that they, and also meaning that they would have roads coming to and from Ephesus throughout the entire Roman Empire. It was the city of Ephesus that would become the gateway for the gospel to reach all of Asia, if you'll just look back in Acts chapter 19, verse 10. Uh, the city was known as a place of worship. As a matter of fact, it had one of the seven wonders of the world within it. It was the temple uh, to the uh, goddess Diana or Artemis, depending upon if you were thinking Greek or Roman, but it was the same goddess. This was, goddess was a wooden idol of a many-breasted woman. It was not very attractive. Uh, temple prostitution was common uh, in this uh, temple. And not only was temple prostitution common, but the, the temple, temple was also a place of asylum for criminals. So you can just imagine that mix of everything that was going on there in this city. And it was here at this city that the gospel of Christ flourished. And this letter is being written back there. Paul spent more time in Ephesus than he did anywhere else on his missionary journeys. When you open up your Bibles and flip back to Acts chapter 19, you get a picture of what the church in Ephesus was dealing with on a regular basis. This was a church that was steeped in idolatry. It was steeped in spiritual worship apart from God. As a matter of fact, one of the accounts in Acts chapter 19 was the seven sons of Sceva who were sons of a Jewish priest that went to a demon and tried to uh, uh, cast out a demon in one man. And, and when they get there, uh, the demons look at these seven sons and they say, well, Paul we know and, and Jesus we know, but we don't know who you are. And the, the demons overpowered him through this, them through the one man where they ran out of there bleeding and naked. And this impacted the people of Ephesus so much that these demons knew the name of Jesus and of Paul. And then when the people gave their lives to Christ, they completely gave their lives to Christ. They left their idolatry. They burnt their books of sorcery and they gave their lives fully to Christ. Well, the idol makers had a difficult time with that because they lost their source of money. Does that sound familiar today? And so a riot broke out in the city of Ephesus and was calmed down. And, and this city has great history to it when you go back in the book of, uh, of Acts and read it. But in this city, there was a church. Not like the church that we think of today. Right? The church didn't gather together in one building. The church met in homes across this city. And it was led by elders uh, there. And it was a church that was spread out. And so Paul, when he begins to write this letter to the church in Ephesus, he opens up with a prayer. And like I said, that prayer sounds like a sermon. And from that prayer, we are going to see reasons why we can worship or we should worship God. And here's the first thing I want us to see. We can worship God because in Christ, in Christ... We are chosen. Look at verses three through six. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he graciously bestowed on us in the beloved. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord. The NIV actually declares it this way, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord. You see, what we've got to grasp and understand is that God alone is worthy of worship. He alone is worthy of worship. 
right? Not our struggles, not our idols, none of those things, but God alone. And we must understand that from Christ and in Christ, every promise and every blessing that the Bible gives us is found right there in Christ, in Christ. You see, forgiveness is in Christ. Hope is in Christ. Grace is in Christ. And before we move on to anything else, I want to ask you this question. Are you in Christ? You see, because if you're not in Christ, everything that I read here does not apply to you. As much as the world wants to say that it does, it doesn't, right? If you're not in Christ, then then you're apart from Christ. You're still at war with God, and, and these blessings are not there for you. But if you're not in Christ, then this is your first step, right? To, to, to get in Christ. Do you know you're a sinner that's separated from him? Do you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins on the cross? Do you understand uh, that you, he's called you to repent and to confess him as the Lord of your life? Are you willing to submit yourself to Christian baptism? It's those things that you need to do to get yourself in Christ. And, and once you're there in Christ, then, then the blessings that are being spoken of in this book and in the rest of the New Testament are for you. But it's in Christ. And God's word declares a few things. It says we're chosen in Christ. Much of Christianity divides over that meaning of what it means to be chosen in Christ, right? Does that mean that God chooses us or that that we choose God? And there's parts of Christianity that will declare that it means that God sovereignly chooses us for salvation and and those he doesn't choose are lost for eternity. I want to clearly state this a couple of things. When you read through God's word, there's this tension that's involved with does God choose us or do, do we choose him? There are verses that seem to indicate and, and, and argue for both, but I, I really believe this, and I, this is what I think that God's word clearly teaches, that God is most glorified when man by his free will choice chooses to submit to Christ as Lord. Right? But here's something else I understand. I also know that I am not right with Christ because I got it right about Christ. I know there are things that God orchestrated in my life to get me to this point where I am that were outside of me. Right? As a matter of fact, I am right with Christ or with God through Christ because God got it right for me through him and I've just put my faith in what God has done for me there. So, listen, friends, I believe that God is the one who's done all the work and that work was done in the cross of Christ, but it's my faith in his work that partners together with his grace. The Bible's clear. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. Right? By grace through faith. God provides by grace we partake through faith. God's word declares that we're chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And let that sink in. Let it just sink in for a moment. That in Christ, he's chosen us before the foundation of the world. Even before God said, let there be light, he understood what was going to take place. Even before God said, let us make man in our own image, he understood that that man that he was going to create was going to reject him and walk away from him, that his son was going to have to die, come and die in the place of that man to redeem that man back, and God still created. Even before we were being formed in our mother's womb by him, he understood the sins that you and I would struggle with. He understood what he was going to have to save us back from through Christ, and he still created. So we're chosen. But, But here's the thing. We've got to understand that this text gives us an idea of what we're chosen for. And the first thing is that we're chosen to be holy. We're chosen to be holy. 
Does that idea intimidate anyone else? Whenever you hear that idea, it says you're to be holy, right? We get this mindset about us that holiness means that there's some kind of moral perfection that God has called us to. Right? And I don't think we should completely walk away from that idea. I think that's part of that chase to holiness, that the sins we've struggled with before, the Spirit gives us power over today and tomorrow, and so we're becoming more like Christ as we strive through, as we struggle through life. But, but really what I think we should see this holiness as is what it really is. It's not a moral perfection, but it's a place and that place is that God sets us apart and makes us different so that we can be used by him. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. For you are a holy people to Yahweh, your God. Yahweh, your God, has chosen you to be a people for his own treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. First Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, when you think about it, the reason that we chase holiness, the idea of leaving the world behind and becoming more like Christ is so that we can lead others to Christ. It's so that we can be used in his kingdom. See, God declares this in 1 Peter as well uh, through the prophet. Therefore, having girded your minds for action, being sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not being conformed to the former lust, which were in you, which yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your conduct, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You see, the Bible tells us that we're chosen to be holy, but here's what we've got to grasp and understand. God never chooses anyone for the purpose of privilege. He, he didn't choose the nation of Israel to be a privileged nation. He chose the nation of Israel so that the Messiah would be born through them. And when God chooses us, he doesn't choose us for privilege. He chooses everyone for purpose. It's always been that way. God chose Abraham that through his seed, the entire world would be blessed. God chose Joseph so that he could save his brothers. God chose Moses to lead God's people out of Egypt. God chose his disciples. Remember, go back and read it. When he chose his disciples, he chose them for purpose. He said, follow me, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. You see, when God chooses us, he calls us to be holy, to be set apart for the use in his kingdom. And later in this letter, we're going to be reminded that we're saved by grace through faith, not by works so that no one can boast. But we often forget that next verse that comes after that. That next verse in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, says something like this, that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? To do good works, which he prepared in advance that we should do. So to be chosen means to be holy, to be set apart for the use in God's kingdom. Friends, are, are, are we used in God's kingdom today? As individuals, are we allowing God to use us in his kingdom? As a church, are we allowing God to use us, setting us apart for his kingdom? We're chosen to be holy. He also says we're chosen to be blameless. This brings about a picture of spotless 
sacrifice. And, and as a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, whenever there would be a sacrifice of blood to be offered to God of any kind, all of them, they all said something similar. It's to be of an animal that's spotless, without blemish, right? That's the one that kind of makes me sit back and think that, that he's chosen me to be blameless. He's chosen us to be blameless. Friends, can, can, can we say that about our lives? And the truth is, is that none of us can. None of us are going to be able to stand up and say right now, today, yep, I'm blameless. I haven't sinned this week. I haven't sinned this month. I haven't sinned this year. Uh, you know, we, none of us are going to be able to like Paul. Paul pointed back to the law at one point and says, as to the law, I was perfect. I was spotless. I was blameless, meaning that he carried out all the things that the law had demanded of him to remain in a right relationship with God, but he wasn't spotless. He wasn't because the law made provision for his sin. You know what I love about this idea more than anything is that what God calls us to be, he's done for us in Christ. He's done that for us in Christ. The Bible declares, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All but are justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. That is a picture of grace. What God has chosen us to be, he's made us in Christ. There's a great exchange that takes place when we cross over from death to life. And that great exchange is this, is that God takes the righteousness of Christ and he puts it on us as sinners and he takes our sin and he puts it on the cross where it's been fully paid for. The Bible declares, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And there can't be two more important words in this entire text, in him, in him. The only way that we can become blameless is in Christ. It's in Christ. I know I've told you the illustration, but it fits here. And, and I'm going to tell you again, for those that haven't heard it, it reminds me of that, a college student that was having a hard time passing his, his biology test. And he had taken the class three times or four times at this point. And the professor finally started to feel bad for him and said, I tell you what, take this blank piece of paper and put whatever you want on this blank piece of paper. And you can bring that back and you can take the test. And so the day of the test came and the professor looked over at the young man and said, all right, take out that blank piece of paper or that piece of paper and, and get it ready. And so the young man did. And he took out the piece of paper. And, and instead of putting it on his desk, he, he put a blank piece of paper on the floor and he looked back at the the door to somebody who had aced the class and was a teaching assistant and he waved her into the class and she came in and she stood on that piece of paper over his shoulder and so he could pass the class. Friends, that's the picture of blameless that God has given us right here in, in Christ. It's not that he's going to look at us and see us blameless, but when he sees us, he sees his son and when he sees his son, he sees spotless perfection. And it's in Christ. So we're chosen also for adoption. The Roman idea of adoption is, and Roman, Rome was a big society of adoption. As a matter of fact, many of our laws can just kept getting passed down uh, from them when it comes to this idea of adoption. But as soon as someone was adopted in the society, they had full rights as a child. Most of the time, it was just sons that were adopted in that society. But they had a full, full rights as a son, meaning that they shared in the inheritance with the rest 
of their siblings. And, and they had full, not, this scope of this relationship was not just vertical, but it was horizontal as well. And we'll see in this great letter responsibilities that we have toward one another. See, because when we're adopted into the family, that means we not only have a relationship with the father, but, but with each other. Do we think about that enough? Is it a reality for us to understand that, that adoption means more than just our salvation and awaiting heaven? Adoption means that I have responsibilities in your life and you have responsibilities in mine. We're family. So why did God do this? There's a phrase that we'll see three times. According to the good pleasure of his will. Look what it says, verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace which he graciously bestowed upon us. See, we worship because we're chosen. We also worship because in Christ, in Christ, we're redeemed and forgiven. We're redeemed and forgiven. And let us sink in for a moment, church. So often we walk around defeated in our faith. So often we walk around as there's no hope. So often we live in this reality that says, man, I I sure hope, I sure hope that I'm forgiven. I sure hope when I close my eyes for the final time that God will forgive me. See, friends, the Bible has already taken care of that if we'll trust it and believe it. And it says right here in these verses, 7 through 10, that if we're in Christ, we're redeemed and forgiven. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our transgressions according to the riches of his grace, which he caused to abound to us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in him for an administration of the fullness of the times. That is, the summing up of all things, where? In Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. Redemption, to be redeemed, means to be bought back. But there's a question, bought back from what? Bought back from what? Uh, there are many who, who live with this thought process that, that we're bought back from Satan, that, that, that Christ is redeeming us back to Satan. And, and here's something that we have to grasp and understand. No one belongs to Satan. People fall victims to his games and to his temptations and to his trials. But Christ isn't redeeming us back from Satan. What Christ is redeeming us back from is a separation from God the Father. Right? And how does he do that? Right? First Peter chapter 1. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your futile conduct inherited from your forefathers, but with, a precious, with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but appeared in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. To be redeemed is enough, right? Wouldn't that be enough? Wouldn't it be enough to know that, that God has redeemed us back to himself? But the text gives us even more. Like I said, but there's more. There's this commercials, right? And the more here is amazing. We're not only redeemed, We're forgiven. Friends, let that sink in. We're we're redeemed and we're forgiven, and that forgiveness comes in Christ. I'm reminded right now of the prodigal son. 
You remember his story, right? He took his inheritance and he ran from his father and he went off and he, he, he squandered it in, in sinful living and, and he became broke. And in that broken state, he found himself feeding pigs, which was one of the worst things could have been done for a Jewish boy. And from that standpoint, he looked up and thought to himself, man, in my father's house, the, 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 the servants are eating better than this. Here's what I'll do. I'll arise and I'll go back to my father's house. And on his way back to his father's house, there was that speech, right? Do you remember? I'm going to paraphrase it. But, but he, that speech was, Father, I am sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just treat me like one of the slaves and, and I'll be good with that. Do you remember what happened? This is the way I like to picture that, that he started that speech before his father. And, and as he started speaking that, saying, Father, forgive me, that his father right away put his finger up to his mouth. And he looked back to his servants and he said, listen, go get the fattened calf. It's time for us to party. And he put a robe on him and put a ring back on his finger. And he said, this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. That's the kind of picture that I get in my head about this redemption and forgiveness. We're not only redeemed, man, we're forgiven. We're forgiven. And I think as believers in Christ, we need to live in that reality so much more than we do. We need to stop questioning that salvation in Christ and and lean into that salvation that's in Christ. And and when those moments of doubt pop into our head, we need to go back to verses like this. There is now no condemnation for those who are where? In Christ. In Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. We're free from that law. We don't have to live there anymore. He says this in Galatians. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. For freedom that he set us free. Therefore, stand firm and do not subject again to the yoke of slavery. Friends, how does this fact change the way we worship, knowing that we've been not only redeemed, but forgiven? It should change every aspect. As a matter of fact, our lives should be filled with this joy that cannot be taken away from us. Oh, what about my sin, preacher? And God's word has made provisions for that in Christ. That if we're faithful and just to confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive them. He's made provisions for that. So, and we we worship because in Christ we are redeemed and forgiven. The last point here is that we worship because in Christ we have a guaranteed inheritance. And that word guaranteed is powerful. It's powerful. Look at verses 11 and 12. In him, we've also been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. To the end of that, we who have first, we first, uh, so let me read that again, verse 12. To the end of that, we who first have hoped in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Man, there's that phrase again. Be to the praise of his glory. That's worship, right? That we would understand that, that we have an inheritance. And those who are in Christ have been predestined. predestined. And here's what that predestination is. It's, it's not God choosing. He's not saying, all right, Joel, you're good. And uh, Melissa, you're not. And Walt, you're not good. And uh, Susie, you're good. That's not what that predestination is. You know what that predestination is? Is that he knew beforehand who would respond to faith in the gospel. And those who would respond to faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, he's predestined for these things. He's predestined an inheritance. Man, an inheritance. What is that inheritance? 
What is it? I think back to my early days here in this church when we would sing, I'm satisfied with just a cottage below. I can still hear Lucy playing that part on the organ in my mind's ear. You know, and uh, that's not it. You know what that inheritance is? Is that one day, you and I, our lowly bodies will be transformed into the glorious body that is like Christ's. And at that moment, we will be before our Father in heaven. I mean, God's word's clear, what it tells us. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4 tell us, right? It tells us, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. He, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things passed away. So in the presence of Christ, in the presence of our Father, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. You know why? Because there'll be no more sin. All of those things are a result of sin, not only our own sin, but the sins of others. And, and we'll have our fully redeemed bodies in the presence of God, and we have that inheritance. But the greatest thing about that is that, that it tells us that this inheritance is, is guaranteed. But it's guaranteed in one place. It's guaranteed in Christ. Verses 13 and 14. In him you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation... Having also believed, were sealed where? In him. With the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. In Christ, when you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit was promised to the disciples of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is promised to the follower of Christ who submits themselves to Christ as Lord. Do you know where that's from? Acts chapter 2, verse 38. The Bible tells us that when we believe and are baptized into him, that we are given the promised gift of the Holy Spirit, that seal, that guarantee. And that's that word, right? Some versions use the word pledge. Some use, versions use the word guarantee. Uh, some use the word deposit. But we get the mindset, right? We get the idea that when we give our lives to Christ and we're raised to the newness of life, that he seals us with his promised Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit becomes that guarantee within our hearts, within our souls, that we do belong to the Father. As a matter of fact, this week, just go back and read Romans chapter 8, along with reading Ephesians. Because in Romans chapter 8, we're told, it's the Spirit that gives us life. In Romans chapter 8, we're told that the Spirit helps us to cry out, our Abba, Father. In Romans chapter 8, we're told that by the Spirit, we can put the death and misdeeds of the body. In Romans chapter 8, we're reminded of so many things that the Spirit will do in our lives. Elsewhere in the Bible, we're told the Spirit helps us to remember those things that we've put in from God's Word. So until we're raised on that last day, we can know that because we have the Spirit of God, that we have a guaranteed hope, a guaranteed inheritance. Right? How does that change the way you live? How does that change the way you view the news? 
How, how does that change the way you worry about the next election? How does that change the way you worry about the economy collapsing? See, friends, if you read Romans chapter 8, you're going to get to the end of that this week, and you're going to see what that promise that I've shared so many times from Scriptures, where it's, the Scripture it said, we are more than conquerors through where? Him who loved us, and that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. So in Ephesians chapter 1 through 14, that phrase, to the praise of his glory, was used three times. In him or in Christ, I think I counted correctly in, in the Legacy Standard Bible, it was used like 12 times, in Christ or in him. So in Christ we are chosen, in Christ we are redeemed and forgiven, and in Christ we have a guaranteed inheritance to the praise of his glory. And this is why we can, and this is why we must worship. Remember, if you're a follower of Christ, you've already predetermined that you're responsible to do what God's word says. So this is why I started with that question, are you in Christ? Are you in him? Are you in him? If you're not, what keeps you today? from taking that step to declare Jesus Christ to be the Lord of your life, to confess him as Lord, to repent and to be baptized, to be sealed with his Holy Spirit, and then to walk out of this building today chasing after that same holiness that the rest of us are chasing after, living that same purpose to worship him because we're chosen, we're redeemed and forgiven, and we have a guaranteed inheritance waiting. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that each of us, each of us allow your word to transform our worship. That we start allowing the promises and the truths of your word to really impact us and, and change us, not, not for it to be something that, that we speak with no authority or no power in our lives, God, but that we truly worship and we understand what's taken place. You've chosen us, God, to be holy and blameless. You've adopted us, Lord, to be a part of your family with responsibilities and a call. You've redeemed and forgiven us, Lord, and, and you've set us apart. And, and we have promises, Lord. We know. We know from your word, and we even, else other places, Jesus even said he'll raise us up on the last day. So God, knowing that, help it to change our worship this morning. Help it to change our worship tomorrow morning. Help it to change the way we worship Thursday afternoon. Help us to change the way we worship when we encounter our neighbors, our, our family who is not in Christ, and our, our friends who are not in Christ. Lord, help us to understand that, that every blessing, every promise you give us is found there. And if we're there, we need to do everything we can do to get other people with us. Help us to change, Lord. We love you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So how are you going to respond this morning? Are you in Christ? If you want to talk about what needs to take place to get there, let's, let's meet down here in front. Let's stand and sing together.